home. There are uh, pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't have one, it's our gift to you. You can take that home with you. You're not stealing it. It's yours to keep. And uh, Philippians could be a tough book to find if you're not used to using a Bible. It's in the New Testament on page 982 if you're using one of our red pew Bibles. You'll be helped if you open that up. Leave it on your lap as uh, you follow along. And I want to begin with a quote that I think came from C.S. Lewis. It's an expression that I think all of us use and we're familiar with, but I think he is one that kind of put it in a nice, succinct way. And he said this, expectations are everything. Expectations are everything. Let's just kind of pretend for a moment that you were to walk into this room, and before you got into it, uh, I was to lead you in and say, now before we go in, uh, I want to tell you what this room is. Okay, so that when you're walking in, you know what it is. This room is a honeymoon suite. You know, you might look around and just kind of go, hmm, you know, the, the lighting's nice, the cathedral ceilings are nice, but what's up with the corner? You know, that's not very romantic, right? You know, and it just doesn't quite fit. But let's imagine we're going to walk into the exact same room, this sanctuary, And instead of saying that it's a honeymoon suite, I walk up to you and I say, okay, before we go in, I want you to realize that this very room is a jail cell. The same room that you thought was a honeymoon suite, you thought was a dump, but now you look around and say, a jail cell? Wow, I can't believe I get this much room in a jail cell. I mean, I get windows, I get to see the outside, we have lighting, it's heated in here, I wasn't expecting that, I could do calisthenics, I can sleep on something comfortable, this place is great, I mean, whoo, so glad I'm here, this is, this is the best jail cell ever, I love the decor, the dump at the place, you know, it's great. Well, we see that it is when we have expectations, and whatever our expectations are, it really filters what we are seeing, and it filters what we're hearing. Whatever you expect can really shape what you think about something. And a lot of Christians are struggling to keep their joy and their peace in place because we don't expect the attacks that are inevitable to our peace and our joy that come throughout life. Uh, just this week, uh, I should have expected it, right? It's working with people. But I was, I was snubbed this week by somebody. You know what happened for the rest of the next hour? I was upset that I was upset because that little snub should not have even bothered me. I was frustrated that I actually was frustrated. You know what I'm saying? Just half of my anger, half of my frustration was just in the fact that I should know better. Do I take myself that seriously that I can't be snubbed? No. But it's just the expectation of it's not supposed to be like this. Now, I'm not going to do this for the remainder of the sermon. I think you can probably do some of your own math here. So I'm not going to give you countless illustrations of the pandemic and COVID-19. But when it comes to expectations are everything and your frustrations and your disappointments and your uh, dissatisfaction with life, just insert whatever that means for you now. I think there should be enough between March and now for you to go, yeah, I could kind of get where that was mildly frustrating. That was discouraging. It's not what I expected. Who in here is not as efficient as they were at their work? Okay, yeah. <laughs> Kids, who, are you as efficient at school as you are now? No. I used to be able to get so much more done in a day, right? But now that I have, fill in the blank, man, it all goes out the window. So expectations are everything, and Christians often don't have the proper expectations. 
If we don't have the proper expectations, we're not going to be able to do what Paul says in Philippians 4.1. This is kind of the controlling verse, if you're our guest. 4.1 really paves the way for the rest of the chapter. Paul wants us to stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And if we don't have the proper expectations, we're going to lose our stability, right? Because stability, standing firm, means that we are standing firm against something. It means that Christians are going to go to battle, that this world is not our home, it's not friendly towards us, that Christians actually have enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil are waging against us. And if you don't have the proper expectation of what that means to be a Christian, Paul says you're going to get mauled. I mean, you are just going to get knocked over. And he begins to outline in the rest of chapter 4, I'm just going to walk us through where we've been, verses 2 through 3. You're going to get mauled by walking into church if you don't have the right expectations. Two and three, there's two ladies that are disagreeing. And who hasn't had that expectation completely frustrated? You're a new believer. You just get saved. This is the church home that you've been looking for. You finally find it, and you have this overestimated expectation that it's here at FCBC. You're going to grow. It's here where you're going to find a faith family to walk with you through it. It's here where you're really going to give it your all. And then you get into some miry situation over some minor issue, and you're discouraged, right? Who in here thinks that they're going to grow in the beginning of the year, and you think you're going to grow in ways that you want to grow in? Almost like you're choosing elective Sunday school classes. You look at all the classes that we offer and you go, oh, I'm going to pick that one. That one looks interesting to me. And as I begin the year, I think, you know what, I really want to grow on this as a pastor. And you kind of pick the thing. And then the rest of your year, God just says, no, you're not going to work on that issue in the way that you thought with your highlighter and your pen and your book. You're going to work on it through, bam, this situation. You're like, ah, I didn't want that lesson and learn it in that way. So it's not just for people, it's for pastors too, where we overestimate how much we're going to get done, how joyful it's going to be to be a shepherd. What ease and what fruit from the teaching and preaching ministry of God's word, right? Well, the result of all of these unhealthy expectations is that it leads to discouragement. We're discouraged because we overestimate how easy it's going to be and we underestimate what the enemy can use to drive a wedge between us and God. It's as simple as that. And so verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Well, And when our expectations aren't met, we're not rejoicing in the Lord. We actually lose our joy. And we fall into that all-too-common snare of complaining. Insert COVID again. Fill in the blank. Complaining. Our hearts release a sigh. Oh, my word. What are we going to do about this? Right? This should not be this way. Perhaps now, but the fact that we're in October, will it always be this way? When are we going to get back to normal? But disappointment after it takes hold of your heart, have you noticed it doesn't stop there? Discontentment really is a gateway to all other kinds of sins. Let me say that again. Discontentment is a gateway to all other kinds of sins. If you're discontent, you're probably going to be tempted to envy. The envy of Eve, right? The, the, the sin of comparison. You're looking over your fence into your neighbor's yard and you're thinking, I want that. It comes from a discontent heart. Worry also comes from being discontent, right? Because discontentment says, I'm not happy where I am. I'm not happy with what I have. Now we begin to worry, does God really care about me? 
Right? All of those things just kind of flow out of this issue of discontentment to the point that our spiritual engines begin to stall. Right? What once looked straight and clear, the road ahead of us from God's word to our lives, we we're going to live it, we we're going to apply it, we we're going to you know, pursue Christ in this way. Now we have roadblocks and traffic jams and we are frustrated. It seems that a collision with contentment is going to be inevitable. Discontentment really is just around every corner. But the good news of God's word this morning is that so is grace. If contentment is just around every other, con- every other corner, well, grace is around every other corner as well. And Paul wants to show you this morning how to kind of keep your engine revved for perseverance, for stability in the Christian life, and it comes from contentment. Look with me at Philippians 4, verse 9. Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul wants to kind of take you by the hand and he wants to say, do you want to know how to stand firm in the Lord? Look at me. That's what Paul's saying. Do you want to know how to rejoice in the Lord always? Look at me. Do you want to know how to have a yielding and gentle spirit? Look at me. Do you want to know how to stop worrying? Look at me. That's Philippians 4, 6, and 7, right? He gives us a litany of commands through chapter 4. We have stand firm in verse 1, rejoice in verse 4, spirit of gentleness and uh, yielding the Lord is at hand, verse 5, praying, verse 6, thinking and obeying, verses uh, 8 and 9. How do I do all those things? Paul says, look at me. And the secret to all of this is our passage, verses 10 through 13 Paul says the secret to all of these is contentment. It deals with how you rejoice, helps you stop worrying, helps you to think the right things, obey the Lord. And so I guess our question as we get started is, are you taking discontentment seriously? You know, on your rating scale of what's a major sin and a minor sin, sometimes we do that as Christians, right? Would you ever pick out of the whole list of things you want to work on this year your discontentment? Well, it definitely seems that God is definitely helping us come face to face with it through so many frustrations, so many disappointments, so much dissatisfaction with the way things are, that yes, it's right before us. And even though it might seem like a little sin, it really does lead to many others. So perhaps we should rate it the same way Paul does here. Paul says, man, I know how to rejoice at all times. I know how to be gentle at all times. I know how to cease from worrying. I can think through things with a biblical worldview, all because I'm content. And yet, Paul knows harsher realities than most of us will ever know. He's writing this from prison. Hear his secret in verses 10 through 13. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. God, we just want to praise you that you are the God who is content in himself. You are content with what you are doing. You are content with how you are doing it, with how it is moving along, uh, the goal of it. You are not frustrated. Nothing stands in your way. You are aligning things for your glory. You're delighting in the sun. 
and in the Spirit. And the Son is delighting in the wonderful plan of the Father and is delighting that the Spirit is indwelling believers and sealing them and filling them and indwelling them. And the Spirit rejoices in being sent by the Son and again the plan of the Father. Just in perfect community, enjoying and delighting each other. And God, we want to enter into that as well, knowing that you've given us your Holy Spirit. He lives inside of us. What a resource that we have to know how to be content uh, in Christ Jesus, looking at all you've done to provide for us. God, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we may see that everything we need and everything we lack can be found in Jesus Christ. We ask this to his glory and honor. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, why did Paul have to write Philippians? Uh, as I see some new faces here, just the big picture, why did Paul write Philippians? Well, the Philippians uh, have Paul as their very first pastor. Paul planted that church. He also is the Philippians' very first missionary. He gets sent out from that church, not in a gracious way, really. The, the, the Roman, or not the, the Roman, but the, the, uh, the organization, the government around them actually kind of cast him out. He was in jail for a while there in Philippi, got sent on his way. But the Philippian church continued to support him even though Paul went out from them. They wanted to take the gospel to the ends of the world, and they thought that through Paul, perhaps even the gospel could get all the way to Rome. They were optimistic about that. Look with me about how much this would mean to the Philippians to get a verse like verse 22. Go over to 4.22. All the saints greet you, especially those of whose household? Caesar's. I mean, like, we partner with missionaries here, and what a great way to get a newsletter back saying, it's you going through me that has actually reached the people that you were hoping for all along. Caesar's household, those of Caesar's household are actually now added to the church. They greet you. It's gone that far. They would have been encouraged. Well, we know that from Philippians 4.15, that not all the churches really partnered with Paul. The Philippians did. It meant finances. But for a time, they got separated from Paul, and they couldn't wire him money. They actually had to get it delivered to him. And to get it delivered to him, he'd have to know where he is. And at times, they had a hard time uh, tracking Paul down. Well, eventually, they find his whereabouts, and Epaphroditus brings Paul a financial gift. And now Paul is going to write them a thank you note. The book of Philippians is really a thank you note back to the church for how they've cared for Paul. And you've probably heard that in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. What is Paul saying there? Does that sound like the worst thank you note ever to you? Imagine that I was to get a gift from you and I wrote you this thank you note back. I rejoice in the gift that you've given to me because you are finally showing that you cared for me again. Sincerely, Josh. He'd be like, you know, I, I'm not sure that's, that's really how you write a thank you note, Josh. Well, let's go on to verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So I continue my thank you note. Hey, I'm thankful for the gift because it finally shows that you remembered me and have cared for me. Not that I really needed that gift anyways. Sincerely, Josh. <laughs> Is this a thanks but no thanks? Have you ever thought of a gift that you've given somebody? Maybe it's a a great aunt. We'll we'll kind of keep it that far removed. Where you know she needed this. It was expensive. All the relatives went in on it and you got it for her. And she was just like, that's too expensive. 
thanks but no thanks. And she takes it, but you know it's just going to sit there in the corner collecting dust. You're like, come on, take it, you need it. No, I couldn't, I couldn't. Does Paul get this gift from Philippi and just is now going to start, you know, funneling the money out to other people? What is he doing here? Well, you have to remember that Paul's a pastor. And Paul is going to take every chance he gets to teach. And so even though he's really thankful for the gift, he wants to clarify, he wants to make sure that they don't believe that he's only content because of their gift. He wants them to know through his teaching that his happiness, his contentment is not like a thermometer of circumstances where the better his circumstances go, the more content he is. And the worse his circumstances go, the less content he is. No, he wants them to know that as much as he's grateful for the gift, he's learned to be content in any and every situation. In fact, Paul wants to say, look at my life again. I'm a case study of how you can handle adversity with a Christ-centered life. And so he's going to teach them, here's our first principle this morning. Your contentment doesn't depend upon your circumstances. Your contentment does not depend upon your circumstances. That is so hard for us to hear, that your happiness does not depend upon life's happenings. Paul says that we can be content in even the worst of situations. Look at these words that he uses here in verse 12. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. Whatever I have, Wherever I am, I've learned to be content. Well, if contentment, biblical contentment, works in any situation, in every situation, you probably have to be asking, what in the world is biblical contentment? Tell me, what is this? Here's our definition this morning. I'll say it twice. Biblical contentment is a steady confidence in God's care and God's power, right, at work, in your faithfulness. It's a steady confidence in God's care, in God's power, that is at work in your faithfulness. You still have a role to play in it. Let's think about this definition a little bit more, right? Paul has a steady confidence in God's care. Well, what does that mean? It means that Paul believes that God's care for him is more certain than life's uncertain circumstances. God's care for me is something I can rely upon. I have a steady confidence. I'm more certain that God cares for me, even though life circumstances are constantly changing. We see that in verse 12, where Paul says, one minute, I know how to be brought low. Another minute, I know how to abound. Friends, please don't just think about this as financially. Paul knew what it was to walk into a synagogue and get given the front row seat. Prestige, acceptance by men, honor, oh man, I know how to be content when people recognize how good I am and what a gift I am to, to teach, right? But he also knew what it was to be kicked out of town, to have to preach quietly and be uh, you know, writing letters from a jail cell, wondering if his churches even remember him anymore. And that's a whole different category of learning contentment of your approval and your circumstance than just finances. It can be your power, it can be your prestige, but it also can be your pocketbook. Second, Paul learned what it was to have steady confidence in God's power. God's care is always going to be with me, but God's power, what is that? how does that help you? 
A steady confidence in God's power means that you recognize that God is the one who brought whatever circumstances into your life that you currently have, and it's for the good of your soul. God is the one that brought these circumstances into Paul's life, and Paul's able to say, it's for the good of my soul. That's God's power. He's able to work through anything for the good of your soul. I liken it to this example I heard from Megan Hill. Uh, Pat and Martha, Laura and I, we went on a four-day canoe trip with college students over the summer. We had to bring in our own water, our own firewood, and we were roughing it in a canoe for four days. It was exciting. Our expectation was, though, that we were going to be roughing it. So you kind of knew you weren't going to shower, limited food, though Martha and Pat made up some pretty delicious things, right? We knew all that, but we also were studying for four days contentment with our young adults because these young adults have not gotten into the college that they wanted, have not had the year that they've wanted, have not gotten the jobs that they wanted, and we just felt like our young adults were struggling more than ever with really just that issue of contentment. Well, we needed it too. And it just so happened that we had a nice chance to practice this together. And we all read this devotional by Megan Hill in which she likens how God can bring anything into your life for your good by thinking of a toolbox. And she says, everyone has a toolbox. Some people, like me, when I came to New Hampshire, your toolbox could fit in a Leatherman pouch. I think the only tool I brought up here from Washington, D.C. was a Leatherman multi-tool. Not really going to get me a lot of friends in New England, and it wasn't really sufficient. But you know what? I could hang some pictures with it. I could open a can with it. You know, there were some very basic things that I could do. But as I went from renting the parsonage to owning my own home and struggling to do some home repairs with a multi-tool, I had friends like Dana Fisher or Rusty Stratton who would say, hey, Josh, um, there's a tool for that. <laughs> you know, this thing exists. And I began to see Dana Fisher's garage, Ralph's garage, Tom Stevens' toolbox. It was like, whoa, all of these things. Cam White, yeah, I, I, okay, he, he wasn't paying attention there for a second, but yeah, we've seen Cam's garage. You know, all these tools can actually help you build this thing. And I was like, that makes the job so much easier. When all you have is a hammer, it's like, I guess we're using that for everything. And this is how she related it to God. She said, God has an infinite toolbox. And God is trying to build you and shape you to look like his son. And he looks at the whole world and he can take the weather. He can take the gray hairs on your head. He can take the ailing knee pain, the back pain. He can take that chronic, you know, sleeplessness. He can take your job. He can take your kids. And God says, all of those are in my power to use to mold you to be content. All of a sudden, I stopped looking at all this stuff out there and saying, I hate that, I'm frustrated with this, I don't like that, I want that gone in my life. I started going, wow, Lord, you're using this person. You're using the weather. You're using my spouse. You're using my children. You're using our national scene. And you can use that in my life to teach me something good. What an awesome, powerful God we have. Tom Stevens' toolbox has nothing on me, God says. I can build anything and get my results using anything. That's what it means to practice biblical contentment and to have a God who can use anything for your good. That's really where it starts. 
Let's see how Paul does this in his own life as a case study. Verse 12, he first learns how to be brought low. He says he's learned to be in hunger, and he's learned to suffer need. He's learned to go without. We've already said that he's been in prison, and so it's helpful for us to realize that Paul is not talking with rose-colored glasses. He's not in an ivory tower. He's not protected from the harsh realities of life as a philosopher. No, he is out there, and he has experienced desertion by friends. He's been betrayed by his countrymen. He's been without friends. He's been without food. He's even been without dry ground to sleep on. The Apostle Paul was left to drift in the ocean for days. Now he's in house arrest in prison, not for the first time in his life, and he's awaiting trial in Rome. All of those things looming in his head as his background lacked food, friends, finances, and here's one for us with COVID, even some freedoms. And yet Paul says, I've learned to be content. Man, don't we need to know that? When somebody comes up to you and says, and here's your story, and says, hey, just be content. You're like, knock it off, right? Because you want to actually see someone who has a steady confidence in God's care and in God's power, who has still been faithful. You want to look at that person and say, that's how you be content. You don't want to just be told, be content. Paul's modeling it here. The more Paul suffered, the more he trusted Christ. The less food he had, the more confidence he had in Christ. The less he had in this world, the more precious Christ was to him. And the less he had, the more he relied upon the one whom he had. It's Christ who strengthens him. It says in 4.13, Christ was the source of his contentment, not his circumstances. So faith family, can you really be content when you don't like the circumstances that you're in? Paul's answer is a resounding yes. More difficult probably than facing poverty, Paul says he actually had to learn contentment when he was facing prosperity. Look again at verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every situation, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. Paul learned to be content whether he was starved or whether he was stuffed. And isn't it more difficult to learn contentment when you have plenty? Right, they say the average American is somewhere between seven to $15,000 in debt because we always want more. And the question is, well, has that more, has that debt made us content? No. Right? But it's not just with gyms and gadgets. People aren't content with their spouses, their kids, their careers. It's a picture of a midlife crisis. This is my life. This is my spouse. These are my kids. This is my career. Ugh. I'm going to find someone who gets me more, who sleeps with me more, kids that respect me more, and a job that appreciates me more. Right? So how does an American handle contentment? I think it's by, I just need more. That's probably our go-to. Our heart wants to believe that. We're constantly asking, do I have enough to make me happy? And guess discontentment always answers no. Not enough. Not yet. And so the challenge is to be content, right, when we have more than we need but less than we want. How to be content when we have more than we need but less than we want? Well, Paul had to learn it on both sides, again, facing plenty or facing poverty. It's not just for those on a tight budget. 
but for those that are in prosperity that have to learn contentment too. So our next question is, well, how did he do this? How do you actually gain biblical contentment? You've heard it over and over and over again in verses 11 and 12. He used the word learned twice and the word know twice. I've learned to be content. I know, I know, and then I've learned to be content. The word learn is an experiential knowledge. He had, he had to work this out. He had to apply it, not just go to school, write it down, pass the test. No, you actually had to use it. Apply those truths to your life, which means this. I hope this is encouraging for you. Contentment does not come naturally to anyone, right? It's just not our natural response. He had to learn it, which means that there was a time in the Apostle Paul's life where he was not content. He had to learn it. He didn't just get saved on the Damascus Road. Those of you that are Christians, Acts 9, right? He's walking along. He gets knocked off his horse, a bright light. He gets saved. He gets called. He isn't just made instantly content. He had to learn this. We would love to think that contentment would come pre-installed like a software program for your new computer. Microsoft Word, already on it. Great. I can run that operating system. No, that's not how contentment works. It's a skill that has to be honed. Or perhaps maybe a more relevant illustration today, contentment is not like a vaccine. It cannot be injected in to keep you immune from all anxiety and complaining. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> No murmuring, no complaining here, just delighting in the Lord, rejoicing always, and again I say rejoice. No, that's not how it works. It has to grow. Well, why? Why does it take time to grow? Because you have to have different life experiences. You have to actually have some situations in your life where you're tempted to be discontent. And as you are, and it seems like today there's more of them than before, you have to work at it, which is here's our next principle, Contentment is not found, it's learned. Contentment is not found, it's learned. You can't just go out there and say, oh, if I had this, now I'd be content. No, you have to learn it. Well, how do you learn it? You have to interpret your life situations in light of God's care and power. You have to begin to interpret your circumstances in light of God's care and God's power. So here's the challenge. Friends, make good interpretations of God's dealings with you. Kind of a more everyday way of saying it is give God the benefit of the doubt. Have you found relationships where no matter what you did, that friend or that spouse or that child looked at it with suspicion? How tedious is it to keep that relationship going when all that you're doing, and it's, let's say it's all good stuff, you're trying to bless them, you're trying to care for them, and they just look at you cross-eyed with suspicion and just kind of skepticism of, is, what's your motive in saying that? What, 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 what are you trying to do by giving me this? Is this manipulation? What kind of in-run do you want? Huh. I find those relationships very taxing in my own life. And if I find it that way, how much more so would God? Doesn't it grieve the Spirit of God when he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt? Through the Red Sea, he brings them into the wilderness to give them the promised land. And after being in the wilderness like just 40 days, they're saying, did God bring us out here to slay us? I mean, that is the worst interpretation of what God is doing in your life, right? God has brought me here to slay me. It is the end of the Israelites. 
No. We got to forsake the bad ones and we got to accept the good ones. So would God give you eyes to see all that he's provided for you in Christ? I want to give you a quote here. Sinclair Ferguson wrote, everything we need and everything we lack is found in Christ. I've been chewing on that for about, uh, I guess, three months. Everything we need and everything we lack is in Christ. He wants you to find that Christ is sufficient for all that you need, which leads us to verse 13, this verse that we know so well but often take out of context. We take it as I'm self-sufficient, and yet this is a verse that wants you to say Christ is sufficient. Look at it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We probably have to clear the air on what this verse does not mean. Who in here has gone to a Christian school, a gymnasium, and seen, I can do all things through Christ on some huge billboard? Perhaps a Philippians 4.13 tattoo. I think Twitter said that it is the most popular verse of the year. I think it has trumped John 3.16. You see it in end zones, and perhaps most famously, you see it on Tim Tebow's glare strips. I mean, he is a heartthrob, we're not going to lie. Okay, Tim Tebow, he's a Christian. He's been uh, out there famously about abstaining from uh, premarital intimacy in order to have a godly testimony. He was a quarterback for the Denver Broncos, if you don't know, and I think he became a patriot for a day or two. Is that about right? Okay. Took the Broncos pretty far at one point, and uh, we see the Philippians 4.13 on his black strips underneath his eyes, and we get the impression that it is a verse of self-empowerment. That if I just believe that Christ will strengthen me, I can accomplish these things. It's a slogan that you say before a job interview or before having your in-laws over. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, that's how we use it, right? It's a blank check to give me the strength to get through this turbulent meeting, whether it's at work or at home. Just Some of you are sitting here with your in-laws. That is so good to see. Yeah, it's a life verse. It's a life verse for Cam. Yeah, it's good. Right, right when you walk in the door. Yeah, there it is. Never have you been picked on so much in a service. I'm sorry. But your in-laws are here. Glad to have them. That's not what this verse means. It's not a blank check of power that God wants to give you for you to live on your own. Instead, it is wanting you to be connected to Jesus. It's a vital union with Christ. If we would just do what the Greek translation wants you to do here. There isn't really any translator that's willing to take the risk of changing this verse because of how popular it is. But the verse really reads this way. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. That's really how the verse reads. Word for word, there's no doubt about it. Nobody debates it, but it's just become popular. And so who's going to actually change it? Well, what's the difference between in him and through him? In him implies union, that you're connected. It's one of Paul's favorite words. If you read through Ephesians, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. But let's just review this letter real quick. You guys can flip around your Bibles, get awake. Philippians 1.1, Paul says, to the saints, in Christ Jesus. If you guys like using your Bibles, the large number is the chapter, the small number is the verses. 1.14, Paul says that he's confident in the Lord. Philippians 1.26, that he glories in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.5, Paul wants you to have this mind, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.29, he wants you to receive Epaphroditus, how? In the Lord. Philippians 3.1, 
rejoice in the Lord. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Stand firm thus in the Lord. For two, agree in the Lord. For four, rejoice in the Lord always. For seven, the God of peace will guard your hearts and minds. Where? In Christ Jesus. It is in him that you get that strength. It is a vital union with Christ. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, understanding that you can be united to Christ is one of the best ways of understanding what does it mean to be a Christ follower. You see, before you're a Christian, when God looks at you, he should see your sin. Perhaps you've done a great job of covering it up, but the Bible says that God sees your thoughts and your hearts, and before him, your sin is as clear as day. Now, God should track us down, and he should judge us for our sin, but instead, God in his mercy planned to not track his gaze toward your sin and find you. Instead, God's gaze goes from you, and he's willing to put your sin on his son. And so his gaze, though it should lead to you, it now transfers over, and his gaze begins to be directed towards Christ. And Christ takes our punishment because sin has to be paid for for God to be just. It's not loving to sweep underneath the rug, to overlook it. That's not grace. That's very cheap grace. Somebody had to pay for it. And so God diverts his gaze from you and puts it on Christ. And he sees his son, and he pours out his wrath on his son. The son dies an excruciating death on the cross, but what was most excruciating is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was punished for our sins, bruised for our transgressions, the Bible says. Well, he rose from the dead in victory, saying that our sins have been paid for in full, and now you have the opportunity to put your faith and trust in Christ. You turn from your sins and you turn to Christ. And the Bible says the good news is that now you're actually hidden in Christ. And here's what this means. When the Lord looks for you to punish you for your sin, he sees his son. And when the Lord looks for his son to be pleased with him, he sees you. That's what it means to be in Christ, that you get all the merits that Christ has, and he takes all of the punishment that we deserve. Our life is hidden with Christ. You have to know that. You have to think that out. And Paul says, if you know that your life is in Christ, live that out. Work that out in everyday life. So if you're here and you're a Christian, what he wants you to do is to work out your salvation. You've been saved by grace alone and faith alone. But for good works. In Philippians 2, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So here's our final principle. Your contentment, you should be content with where you are in what you have. But the Bible says you should never be content with who you are yet. Be content with what you have and where you are in life. But never be content with who you are. Yet, this is the Apostle Paul who in Philippians 3 says what? That he is not content with who he is. He presses on for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. There are things we're striving for with all of his might. He considers all that he was before lost, that he may win Christ. He wants to attain to the resurrection from the dead. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's a gain to be godly and content. Work after it. When you're promised something is for your gain, it motivates you. 
Another illustration from Megan Hill in this devotional, I liked it, was what people are willing to do when there is a motivation or when there is gain to be had. And she uses Chick-fil-A day. Now, we don't really have a lot of Chick-fil-A's, but I have seen a truck out in Tilton now where you can get Chick-fil-A in Tilton. And I guess there's Chick-fil-A day. It's not really popular up here, but people are encouraged to dress as a cow. If you dress as a cow and you wait in line, a bove, I mean, you know, just a full cow outfit. I mean, I'm talking serious cow costumes. People are willing to be out in line looking crazy. You get one free chicken sandwich that day. One. I mean, but, but they're motivated. It's a gain for them, and they're going, I'm willing to dress up to get some free chicken patties from Chick-fil-A. Okay, yeah, some of you are like, where do we go? Okay, we can all go to Tilton right after church, okay, and uh, see if that food truck is there. I don't think it's close. <laughs> We're not going today. Yeah, how many times have you been disappointed? We're going to go out to eat after church on Sunday. Don't go to Chick-fil-A. Okay, they're closed. Anyways, they're motivated by a chicken patty, and Paul says that godness with contentment is great, and something that we're to pursue to put effort in. Well, in closing, I want to share a real-life illustration of a guy named Oliver Cromwell. You probably have heard of him, a famous British leader, and he had nine children. Now, before he died, three of them died. The first in 1632, his first child that he lost was less than a year old. Seven years later, he then buried his 17-year-old son. Five years after that, a 22-year-old son died of typhoid fever. Well, he became despondent. He wanted to resign from government. He had no strength, and he even complained, who has the strength to bury three children? I don't think any of us can relate to that. Then he came across this verse in Philippians 4.13. And through his grief, he says that he had to wrestle Is this verse true? I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. And he asked this, does my circumstance include all things? So I ask you, whatever you're discontent with, whatever has left you frustrated, disappointed, or dissatisfied, be careful what you put outside the circle of all things. What are you wanting to put outside that circle of all things? doesn't apply there. Well, Cromwell said, if this circle of all things is true, then the promise is that I can be content in Christ even through this. That's what Philippians 4.13 really means. I can bear all things in Christ who strengthens me. And yes, it's great that Christians want to wear it in the end zone or on their uh, glare strips. But it's completely different thinking that you're going to dunk a basketball at, what, 5'8 for me? That's not going to happen. I can do all things through Christ. (laughs) I'm going to come down and hurt an ankle or a knee. I'm going to jump this high off the ground. I mean, I'm just not going to do it, no matter how much I believe this verse. But what's really being modeled for us is someone like an Oliver Cromwell who learn contentment that this verse even applies to burying three children. So here's the principle. The better that you know Christ, the more you discover he is the one who satisfies the heart. Everything we need, everything we lack is found in Christ. So are you content? Is it evidenced in your submitting to Christ, delighting in God's care and God's power as you work it out faithfully in your life? Let's pray.
I'm gonna read you this prayer that I found. Lord, I'm willing to receive what you give, to lack what you withhold, to relinquish what you take, to suffer what you inflict, to be what you require. Lord, may I be content with where I am and what I have, but not who I am yet. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Our closing hymn might not be familiar to you. Pat's going to do a great job of leading it. Uh, I know he feels probably uh, as nervous as I would, Um, but it's whatever my God ordains is right. And if you don't know this song, uh, just hear it and reflect on the words.